Welcome to Hudson Institute. Welcome all of you. And uh, we welcome our C-SPAN audience too. Uh, I wanted to uh, welcome also um, the panelists. We're very proud to have a, 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 a wonderful panel, as we often have here. Uh, I'm going to talk about the subject in a moment. But first, I wanted to introduce the other panelists and say briefly the kinds of things that they're, they're likely to touch on. To my immediate right is um, Joseph Bahut. And Joe uh, is a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And he's also a former policy planning consultant with the French Foreign Ministry. Joe and I first met in, uh, in Beirut about 10 years ago now. More. And, um, more. Yes, you're right. More. Um, wow. Uh, and it's a pleasure to have him here. It's a pleasure to welcome him. We've been trying to figure out something to do for a while. It's a huge honor to have him here. To his right is Jumana Kadur and Jumana. Uh, this is her first time at Hudson, too. Um, and we welcome her. And Jumana is a policy analyst at the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Uh, and to her right is my colleague here at Hudson, Michael Duran, a senior fellow. I'm also a senior fellow here uh, and also a senior editor with the Weekly Standard. The panel that we've convened today is uh, Syria five years on. So we're going to touch on some of, the, um, some of the relevant issues that you see unfolding before you right now. Um, I think that Joe is going to be able to give something of a, a, a regional perspective and also something of a European perspective. Jumana will be able to talk about a number of different sectarian issues at play right now on the ground. Mike is going to uh, speak from a, um, a, a U.S. more of a U.S. policy perspective, and this will certainly be one of the things that we that we'll be talking about what it will look like for the um, for the next administration, the next White House, what their policy choices will be in Syria. But I did want to start by saying um, it is five years after what began as a, a peaceful a peaceful uprising in Syria uh, when people took to the streets across, across the country and the Assad regime started firing on them. It's important to remember how what we now uh, commonly call a civil war uh, started as a peaceful protest movement. And it was the Assad regime that turned this into, uh, that initiated the hell that we have been watching unfold the last five years. And the way that I look at what's been happening in Syria what it's turned into the last five years, we are looking at, uh, you've seen people talk about the ISIS campaign of genocide against Christians and Yazidis and other minorities, but let's keep in mind the preponderance of violence has been Assad's and it's been waged against the Sunni Arab population of Syria. I think it's very important to keep this in mind. I think in different ways, uh, there are different players in Washington who would like to divert attention away from that as well as different international players, but this is a key issue. Uh, the other, th the other two things that Syria that Syria's turned into is a, uh, is a massive war, a multi-actor war, including states and non-state actors, and now continues to draw in other players, including, uh, including most recently Russia. Uh, the final thing that the Syria conflict represents at this point is a, uh, is a profound refugee crisis that's affecting both Europe and the rest of the Middle East, including Lebanon, <coughs> Turkey, and Jordan. What we're Watching unfold, as, you, as I, I look at, is the most profound humanitarian catastrophe so far of the 21st century. We haven't seen anything like this since the breakup of the, of the former Yugoslavia. Except even more profound, as I like to point out, is it's affecting two continents at least, rather two regions of the world, the Middle East and Europe. Uh, and I have little doubt that it will um, have profound consequences here in the United States as well, in a number of different ways. 
So um, with that, uh, but again, I just wanted to uh, remind us all to bring it back to how this started a little more than five years ago uh, in Syria. So we can begin, and Joe, I believe that you're going to open up first. So thanks very much for being here, and start off. Thank you very much, Lee. I'm really very, uh, very honored to be here today. First of all, congrats and mabruk, as they say, for your uh, fantastic new venue here. Thank you. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm also very, very happy because the first time I'm doing something with Hudson, but also I'm very humbled and a little bit uh, moved to talk about uh, something that has turned out to be a, an endless uh, bloodshed now. We're reflecting on five years after the start of, uh, of a Syria revolution that, as you said, started very promisingly, and uh, it was in the midst of this uh, Arab, Arab upheaval, Arab uh, uprising, call it as you wish, I mean, Arab Spring or something, that was really bearing promises of change in the Arab world, and today we're stuck into something that is much more unfortunately, uh, murky and, and muddy. Uh, what I would say is probably very much in line with your points. I mean, uh, I would try to say two or three things that oscillate between the, the regional, the international, and the local level in Syria, just to put the broader picture, and then my colleagues could get into more uh, detailed uh, analysis. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the first, I think, very, very strong takeaway that, that we are faced with regarding Syria for the last months is, uh, mainly since the beginning of the Russian intervention, end of September, is that Syria is today quite exclusively a, 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 a monopole of um, a, a duopole between Syria, between Russia and the U.S. I think that all other actors are, at least for now, the question mark is how long and, and, and what could happen after, but they are today monopolizing at least uh, the international diplomatic uh, grammar or the, 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 the tango around Syria. They are the, the, the ones who are holding the keys. Uh, this is very transparent in the UN process, in the Geneva process, in the wordings of the resolution, be it uh, 2254, 2268, etc. Now, the second important thing in that respect, and this is, uh, I mean, I'm saying it very coldly without any polemical intent, is that within this geopolitical uh, let's say, structure of, of U.S.-Russia management of Syria, you have very clearly uh, a U.S. subcontracting to Russia of the, Russia of the Syrian issue. And you can see it very plainly on many levels, uh, the way that uh, uh, the Russians have obtained uh, the, the drafting, the exact drafting of Resolution 2254 and 2268, the fact that uh, uh, Kerry didn't take more than 30 minutes to uh, concede to Lavrov that we uh, would bar any reference to uh, the Riyadh delegation, for example, to Assad's fate that is now, uh, I think, officially uh, accepted. I mean, Reuters had a paper yesterday saying that, that the U.S. has really conceded that the next round of talk would not address the Assad issue. So there's an entire set of concessions. Uh, probably Mike would discuss that, that uh, indicate a kind of subcontracting from uh, the U.S. diplomacy to Russia over Syria. Now, it has several meanings, of course, and it has several implications. I think that 
uh, part of which this uh, very strange announcement of alleged withdrawal or drawdown from Russia in Syria, which is not exactly a withdrawal in, in terms of military, uh, I mean, reality, is the fact that probably Russia took what it really wanted, in fact, out of this intervention, which is partly to do with Syria, but not so much, but partly, but mainly has to do with the will of Moscow to really become the power of the U.S. on the international scene, and we're at that point. Now, it's an illusion, it's a trompe l'oeil, it's something that could fade away, but today this is it. And it has a lot of a set of consequences for, uh, for Syria. Uh, this brings me to the more local dynamics. Um, probably, uh, as we say in economics, ceteris paribus, everything held equal, the truth will hold probably for a moment. Now, a moment in Syria is five, six months, not more. And, and this period is not a coincidence. It's indexed on, I, I feel, and this is my analysis, on the change in the U.S. administration. So until the last day or the last minute of Obama in the Oval Office, probably this kind of illusion of truth will hold. The truth is not holding, and Rumana will say a few words about it concretely, but both parties, the Americans and the Russians, and the UN, the Mistura, has an interest of saying it is holding. So we are presented with the reality that it is holding. Now we have to accept that it is holding relatively, which is something good on a humanitarian level. But what it means in terms of local uh, developments in Syria is, I think, and this is my real fear, and this is why I'm bitter five years later, I think that what we are heading towards today is exactly a kind of frozen conflict. And this is something very familiar uh, to the mind of the Russian strategists. They had a frozen conflict in Crimea, Ukraine, now they are having one in, in Syria. This frozen conflict has several functions and, and uses for them. First of all, it allows them to wait for the next administration and to see what are the bargainings possible with this new administration. Second, it will consolidate the, the front lines and the divide lines and the demarcations. And this is a real potential drama for Syria. It means that maybe we're not heading towards partition in the de jure uh, sense of the term, but in the de facto sense of the term, we have now a fragmented Syria. We have more or less a Alawistan or an Assadstan if Assad survives in this Alawistan, which is a marginal question. Of, of course, a lot of people are excited about this, but it's no more important after all. It's, it's Alawistan. You have a Kurdistan that has been announced uh, two weeks from now, very officially, and of course you have verbal positions from Washington and Moscow saying this is a breach to the political process, but in fact everybody is protecting this Kurdistan. And then you have this kind of very murky, very strange, and potentially very dangerous Sunnistan in the middle, which will become with time the uh, really the, the 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 quagmire for radicalization and greater uh, greater let's say uh, sanctuarization of if not ISIS but other other factions and whereby you will have ISIS fighting with Nusra ISIS and Nusra fighting with others others fighting with seculars etc etc in a kind of uh, uh, really uh, really Somaliland uh, scenario um, my bet is that in that respect and I come back here to the to the external scene. In that respect, we have now a very deadly game between Moscow and Washington, each one waiting for the other to really become exhausted and come back uh, begging for the other uh, for a help. I think the Palmyra battle that we had two days ago is an exact example of that. As soon as the Palmyra uh, dust was settled, 
very quickly after, uh, uh, the, in, in the chancelleries, in the diplomatic circles, the discussion became, what about Raqqa? Who will take the lead on Raqqa? Will it be Russia or a condominium between the U.S. and Russia, etc.? I, I won't, I mean, disclose secrets, but, for example, I received mails from my former French employers I mean, asking what's the mood in Washington? Are the Americans ready to also give Raqqa to the Russians as, as, as a kind of, of in, in this line of subcontracting, which, which would in fact be catastrophic for the Syrians because it, it, it would completely achieve to rehabilitate uh, the Assad regime for a while. So this is on, on the local level. Now, given this very uh, dark and, 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 and gloomy picture, what could derail this? I think two things. Uh, one which is, I admit my naiveness on that, one which is the local reality. You have witnessed that as soon as the truce was in effect, very few hours after, Syrians went down back to the street. So it's as if five years of bloody butchery by Assad, by uh, five years of uh, really kidnapping of the Syrian revolution by radicals and etc. The Syrian, uh, let's say, nerve is still alive. People went down to the street the first Friday asking for the fall of the regime, as if we were in March 2011 still, and the second Friday, clashing physically with al-Nusra in several villages, which is for uh, me as an observer and as a supporter of the Syrian cause, uh, really a motive of, of optimism, meaning that you, you couldn't, you will not be able to put a lid on that story. And I think that this is something people in Washington, in the Oval Office, in Moscow, even in the Mistura's office, and of course in the Palace of Muhajirin in Damascus, should reflect upon. You can't, you will not be able to shut this issue off easily. This is a motive of optimism. I don't know how it will play off. The second thing that could derail this kind of frozen conflict is the regional actors. I think that uh, paradoxically both Iran, Saudi Arabia and Turkey have an interest of not seeing this, con this situation consolidated. Turkey cannot accept a, accept a fragmented Syria, at least because of Kurdistan. The Saudis will never accept that at least Damascus is still uh, in the hands of this regime. And Iran will not easily accept that uh, the, the partial or the, the main winner in this relative, let's say, match is Russia. I mean, they have invested a lot in the Syrian regime. They would like to find their investment down the road. And I, I don't think they're very happy to see that, that uh, Putin is alone calling the shots on that level. Now, what would they do? What could they do? It's very limited. Turkey is now really on the verge of uh, severing completely its physical contacts with the Syrian land. If Hazaz falls in the, in the coming uh, months, it will have to find another way to have a link with the Syrian revolution and the Syrian affair. The Saudis is a mystery, at least for me. They are entangled in Yemen. They are speaking loudly on Syria, but with a few, very few uh, real uh, gestures and actions. They don't want to clash with the Russians. This is something they have announced. And doing something in that respect is taking a risk of clashing with the Russians. So they have a very limited margin of maneuver. But I think that with time, they will all bet on a kind of slow and gradual erosion of this, of this uh, long truce and this fragmented frozen conflict. To conclude, I would say that 
and, and this is, I say it very bitterly and with a lot of, let's say, of, of sadness. Uh, five years later, Syria is no more Syria. I mean, it's, we're talking about something much wider than Syria. It's, it's a regional, international conflict at one point, and in some shades, it is a planetary conflict. And I think that Syria will really define the order, the international order for the decades to come. I think it's, a, it's an enormous tragedy, and I'm not saying it emotively. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real uh, geopolitical acknowledgement. Uh, it's no more Syria. Second, I think that it's still open to a lot of uh, surprises and bad surprises. And at least, and I'll close on that, at least as long as the local reality, the regional <coughs> conundrum, this tension between Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, etc., is not squared off. And at, as long as there is no real parity between the U.S. And, the, and Russia on that issue, with a stronger leverage by the U.S. diplomacy to stand to its own words on the political software or how to solve Syria, as long as these three levels don't coincide, I think that Syria is unfortunately going to become and to stay an open wound, and I'm fearing that in five years from now we will have something of the same talking about Syria ten, year, ten years later. So thanks for a, a, a very moving and very... Uh... A very concise introduction, also touching on a little bit of points. One of the things, um, hearing you speak, that I was reminded I want to come back and ask you in particular, uh, though the two of you may also have some insight into this. Look, looking at Lebanon, what, what will be, or using Lebanon as an example, what are the kinds of things that we might be able to look at over the next yeah. five years, like in terms of, in terms of pace or rhythm, because we do see the, temporary truce right now. Yeah. So what are the things that may happen? I mean, I, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to we'll that. We'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. If, if, you would, uh, if you would like to follow up. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you again for giving me the opportunity to thank speak. Um, uh, I, I wanted to just take a little st step back because my, my job at the commission focuses really on uh, talking to and, and understanding the grievances of many of Syria's ethno-sectarian communities. Um, and as you know, Joe alluded to, and I think you did as well, Lee, the issue of partition is very much a real one. The issue, the word federalis, uh, federalism, excuse me, has been thrown around. So it's really important to understand what a lot of these different communities are asking for, what they're looking for. Um, and I, I really want to emphasize something you said in the very beginning, which is really to dispel the notion that Bashar al-Assad is a protector of the minorities, um, that he is a stabilizing force in Syria, um, and in fact that he is very much quite the opposite. Um, and this is based on what minority communities themselves is told, have told uh, me through my work at the commission. Um, I'll take a little step back just to the beginning of 2011, um, and, and as many of us now know, that Bashar al-Assad made a very concrete decision to release uh, many extremists from, uh, from Sinai and other prisons that then were that then led really the Islamization, excuse me, of the revolution. And they went on to lead ISIL, Jabhat al-Nusra, Jabhat al-Islam, and others. Um, at the same time that he was doing this, he really deliberately used um, uh, sectarian, divisive sectarian rhetoric to really uh, you know, inform and, and make sure that the Druze, the Alawites, and the Christians understood that if they did not send their sons to fight for him, that a Sunni majority would really eradicate them from Syria. Um, and we've seen this emphasized through many different um, instances. Um, you know, the Syrian government has relied on its ally, Iran, to help orchestrate the forced displacement of uh, Sunnis from the suburbs of Damascus to Idlib and removing um, Shias 
from Idlib to uh, Damascus, and that's really to buttress this, uh, you know, that's the stronghold, Assad's stronghold in the capital of Syria. Um, very recently in, um, in Mazdi Basatin, so also an area in Damascus, um, Bashar al-Assad gave the, uh, the Sunnis, mostly the Syrians, but mostly Sunni population, uh, in this area, an ultimatum that if they did not leave within 45 days, that they would be forcibly removed. And on Voice of America recently um, said that Iran also announced uh, that it was encouraging construction companies and whatnot to come and, and construct this area, build it up. And it's no secret that this will likely be populated with people who are very much pro-Assad and, um, and, and would be in good favor with the Iranians. Um, the Syrian Network for Human Rights um, has been documenting a lot of the sectarian violence. Um, it reported that 90% of all the 56 sectarian massacres that have occurred since the beginning of the conflict um, were indeed carried out by the Syrian government itself. Um, it prevented many Sunnis from returning to their homes in areas where there's um, really regional diversity so as to prevent, um, to sort of carve out these areas like Joe was saying that could be a part of a Alawistan and, and exclude those who are not Alawi or pro-Shia. Um, you know, Assad has, I, I really struggle with, with convincing people that Assad is not a friend to the Christian groups. We've talked to many um, Christian communities, both in the north in Hasaka and in Damascus. You know, Assad has targeted 63% of all churches in Syria. Um, he has attacked 166 places of worship, both, uh, you know, from, from all sects. He has killed uh, around 50 uh, Christians, but has detained over 450 Christians, and this is just what we have documented. Um, there are many others that have been obviously arrested and whatnot that haven't been documented. Um, and I want to just move over quickly to, to ISIL because obviously that's captured the attention of the international community. Um, of the 5,800 uh, people that have been killed by ISIL since 2014, 97% of those were Muslims that ISIL attacked and killed. That's a very significant number to keep in mind. Um, about 100 individuals were of minority descent. Um, about 50 Christians were of that number. This is not to downplay the threat that ISIL um, you know, poses to Christian communities and others. Um, obviously, uh, all churches have been closed down in ISIL-held territory. Christians do not feel comfortable, um, you know, uh, for example, not wearing the veil in areas where ISIL controls. But it's really just important to understand that ISIL is really the enemy of all humanity in Syria. I mean, Sunnis, Shias, um, uh, Christians, and, and others. Um, moving really quickly just to the, the armed opposition, there have been instances, I'm not going to go into detail, but there have been some instances of the armed opposition carrying out sectarian-like crimes. I mean, we saw in eastern Ghouta when Jaysh al-Islam arrested and caged 700 Alawites, um, and it was very well publicized throughout the media. And the very next day, the Alawites were released from uh, the cages, and, and from talking to people in Eastern Ghouta, they told us that that was the only day where, upon which I think one person died. I mean, the, the government was very cognizant that the international media's attention was on this area, and so therefore did not uh, attack this area by aerial bombardment, and it resumed its aerial bombardment the very next day after the media's attention was, you know, went elsewhere. Um, about the Kurdish attacks, I, excuse me, the Kurdish groups, Joe has already mentioned them briefly. There have also, there's obviously been attacks of, uh, excuse me, reports of ethno-sectarian violence and ethnic cleansing. Um, I, I would say just as an analyst, I don't think there's enough evidence to report conclusively what exactly is happening in the north. Um, there's obviously been some displacement, but human rights groups are still collecting that kind of evidence to, 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 um, to support or dispute that. Um, 
Moving on just quickly to the issue of the, the cessation of hostilities and in the past month what we've seen, it's been one month and two days. Uh, since the cessation of hostilities has gone into effect. Um, there has been an 85 to 90 percent decrease in violence, which, you know, as someone who was really working in the humanitarian field before I came to the commission, is a very significant number. Um, you know, from talking to people inside of Syria, they'll tell you that it's the first time in about five years people, some people have been able to go to sleep. So it's, it's very significant that the violence has gone down. Now, that being said, 91% um, of all violations have been carried out by the Syrian regime. Um, we have 468 out of 512 attacks um, that have been um, missiles and, and whatnot have been carried out by the Syrian regime. 32 of those attacks, uh, excuse me, 32 attacks were carried out by the Russians, eight attacks by the armed opposition, and four by the Kurds. Um, another violation of, of the agreement would, uh, was detainment, and the Syrian government has also violated this. Um, 333 individuals were arrested in this month alone. And uh, an, uh, the last uh, stipulation in this uh, the cessation of, of hostilities was also the delivery of aid and, and not um, uh, hindering the, fail, uh, the delivery of aid. And we have reports that we've heard from Dimastor's team that I think over, there was a refusal of over 280 deliveries to places that have been besieged. I mean, my own uh, three years, it has not received, it's not been able to receive any medical or food aid um, even now. Uh, 370 people have been killed during this uh, month, which um, is unfortunately the lowest, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, is the lowest number that we've seen over the last five years. So that too is significant. Um, uh, as as uh, Joe mentioned, um, the protests, and I really, I want to emphasize them also as a Syrian American, as, as a very proud moment um, seeing people go out into the streets for the first time in two to three years. I mean, since 2012, we really haven't seen protests anywhere near uh, this type, men, women, and children. And um, I think what's, what's significant from talking to individuals also in the Syrian nonviolence movement who have been sort of behind the scenes and orchestrating a lot of these protests is that these individuals that are out protesting now in Syria are not necessarily the individuals that we saw in 2011. Many of the individuals that were out in 2011 were killed, detained, or fled Syria. So we're seeing a new wave of people that are out in the streets uh, that are still carrying on the message despite having seen their comrades you know, fall or flee the country five years ago. So I think what Joe said really needs to be underlined, that this is not a movement that has disappeared despite the horrific humanitarian conditions that we've seen and the violence, um, the half a million at least people that we've seen die. They, they haven't given up. And they have stood in the face of Jabhat al-Nusra. And it was very significant when, even after Jabhat al-Nusra arrested people from the protest, they still went out and they are protesting against Jabhat al-Nusra even until today. Um, just going back briefly to uh, the, the, the delivery of humanitarian aid, about 30% of people um, have received some type of humanitarian aid in the besieged areas. That's if we consider the number of besieged as half a million. There are reports that it's up to a million. Um, but, but these are like one-off deliveries. So this food may only last them four or five days for an area. It's being divided up, you know, what's something that is meant to be, to feed one person is being divided up for three people. Um, it's, it's a very critical issue. And I think it's one that, uh, Dimasturas team and others, you know, in the ISSG are really paying attention to. It's one way that they can sort of, um, 
hold Assad accountable um, based on the Security Council resolutions that the United States and Russia have have, have really passed and and um, you know are are standing by uh, according to their own um, decisions. Um, you know, it's, it's a real shame, especially on, on this issue, because you have people in eastern Ghouta that we have seen die when there are aid warehouses less than five miles away. We have doctors in homes who, you know, like I said, back to my, my home city, who have told us that they are not able to sterilize any of their medical supplies. I mean, this is causing really unnecessary diseases that could be easily prevented. Um, uh, moreover, during, during these deliveries, these aid convoys, the, the 10 to 18 areas that have, uh, excuse me, the 10 to 18 shipments that have, that have made it through, um, you have, you know, supplies that are being, you know, the, like uh, machines that are being delivered, but the Assad regime is, is consciously taking out critical supplies needed in order to operate uh, these machines. And so it's really, uh, you know, it's really hindering this process in a way um, that is 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 just very um, it, it's absurd on a very on a very basic human level, um, and I think it's something that I hope that the that the United Nations continues to put pressure on. Um, as from what I've heard is that as of April first, that the regime is going to start being held accountable for. Um, uh, allowing or disallowing aid convoys to enter, it has to, excuse me, so, so it has to basically give an answer within 10 days um, as to whether or not these aid convoys can go in. There's really no good reason for an aid convoy not to go into a besieged area. So, you know, folks on the negotiating committee are saying that this might be one way to hold Assad accountable, that the UN and, and the ISSG could hold Assad accountable by placing this sort of 10-day limit. Um, we have the, the, the crisis along the Turkish border. We have about a million Syrians that have been there since the border closed four to five months ago. And on the Jordanian border, we have about 40,000 Syrians that are also stranded um, in the desert. Um, the last thing I'll mention, um, and this is something that I hope Joe can actually expand upon since it's more on the regional level, but the issue of who will be able to take part in any next steps in Syria. I, uh, Dimastura mentioned the idea of elections and who is an eligible voter. You know, we've heard Assad say that he's going, we're going to have a constitution ready by August and that, you know, parliamentary elections in April. I mean, obviously many of us look at this with, this is a very absurd idea. But, but the idea of who will be allowed to have a voice in this is very critical and I think it's something that needs to be emphasized. Syrians on the ground are very much paying attention to this because you have many millions of Syrians who have expired identification cards, expired passports. Um, and, and this is an issue that, that we have to deal with. So, um, you know, in conclusion, I think, um, you know, really going back to, you know, from, like I said, drawing on the work that I do for the commission is really emphasizing ISIL's crimes, not only against Syria's minorities, which are incredibly in a vulnerable position, but also against the many Sunnis that have already suffered and continue um, to suffer and, and, and be very much a target uh, because they don't espouse ISIL beliefs. Um, and also to really hold, uh, to, to encourage our own government here to, um, uh, to keep pushing um, the Syrian government to abide by the UN Security Council resolutions um, that are really critical just on a very basic humanitarian level. I'll stop there. Uh, Jamana, thank you very much um, both for, uh, for your uh, presentation here and also for the really important work you're doing and the, you know, the information you're able to give us. I wanted to also reemphasize something that you said um, before when you started off by saying Bashar al-Assad is not a protector of Christians. And uh, I think it's important to emphasize that not only, because, not only because it's not true, because he's not a protector of minorities, 
but also I, I'm, I'm um, concerned every time that that phrase has resonance in Washington or in the United States. I feel that's not... Uh, or in Europe. Anywhere. I mean, I can't... I, you know, that's the Europeans, it's up to the Europeans. But here in Washington, I think it's very important, and in the United States, it's like we are not in the uh, practice of making distinctions between whose lives are more valuable. Uh, a Christian's life is very valuable. No one should, no one should be slaughtered in Syria. No one should be put through uh, Assad's killing machine. Whether these are Christians, whether these are Yazidis, Shia, Alawis, Sunnis. So I'm, I, I always like pushing back on that idea of protector of minorities because minority lives are not more nor less valuable than those of the Sunni Arab majority in Syria. So thanks very much again. Mike, if you could follow, um, if you could follow up, but I just want to say quickly that um, as many of you, um, I hope, have read uh, Mike's piece from last year on Mosaic, and Mike has, um, Mike has, I believe, uniquely identified the different ways the administration has been moving in the region, uh, which, in, which are largely about uh, Iran, but also Syria is a major part of this. So I think Mike is uh, especially well positioned to be able to put this in a, a larger regional context and also in terms of US policy and different changes. So Mike, thanks very much. Well, thanks for those kind words. Uh, and thanks for having me here on this panel. Um, I uh, agree with every word that my colleagues have, uh, have said. In fact, I'd like to key off something uh, uh, Joe said in his uh, brilliant analysis. Joe, Joe said that, um, that the um, uh, that what's being fought, uh, fought over in Syria is n nothing less than uh, the regional order. Um, and I think that's, an, I think that's um, absolutely true. I think it's uh, worth emphasizing, and I think we need to think much more about it. Um, uh, I wrote down here uh, what I think are six um, principles that um, have become, that I think President Obama has um, sold us on um, there are obviously there are people who dissent, and maybe they don't agree with all of them, but I think the, the administration has been pushing these principles in one way or another. And it's not just the, the, the administration. I shouldn't put it all on President Obama. Um, I think that, um, that uh, in my own party, the Republican Party, a number of the candidates have also pushed these, um, these principles. And I, I think they're all false, and I'd just like to run through them uh, uh, quickly. But, but I'd like to run through them with the, with, uh, in the context of a discussion about the struggle for regional mastery and for regional order that is going on in Syria. Um, the first principle that the president has um, uh, got us to accept, I think, is that, um, that the use of force by the United States is almost always, always counterproductive, uh, or at least in Syria, it, it cannot lead to anything uh, good. Um, the second one is that we don't really, we, the United States, don't really have uh, a vital stake in what's happening in Syria and in the Middle East uh, more broadly. I, I, I don't think there's any other way to read the recent Jeffrey Goldberg article um, in Atlantic, the Obama Doctrine, which I would urge um, everyone to read. Um, I don't think there's any other way to read it than, than, uh, than to say that the president has decided that the Middle East is just not, uh, that a, a stable order in the Middle East is not a vital uh, U.S. American, a U.S. interest. Um, the third principle is that, uh, that the defeat or the weakening of ISIS is our strategic goal uh, in, in Syria. Uh, and that that goal takes precedence over any other um, uh, any other goal. The fourth principle is that um, Iran and Russia uh, are our partners in the fight against ISIS. 
Um, and if they're not behaving today as our partners, they're going to behave as our partners tomorrow. Uh, the, the time and time again, Secretary Kerry and the President have suggested if you listen carefully, you can hear that you can hear the footsteps of, of uh, President Putin. He's he's just about to turn the corner and come in here in order to work with us to get rid of Bashar al-Assad. <laughs> Meanwhile, therefore, we can give up we can give up any demands about Assad, any serious demands about the composition of the Syrian government or concessions to the opposition because. Any minute now, here he comes, uh, President Putin. Um, and President Putin is very much aware uh, of that, and he plays to it by you know, saying, I'm withdrawing my forces from Syria. Uh, I haven't seen them yet withdraw yet. Um, uh, uh, the sixth is that there are no moderate. The fifth, um, I'm at five. Um, uh, uh, you know, I'm at five, and I can't even read it. So I'm going I'm <laughs> to run. I'll run to, I'll, I'll, say, I'll go to five here and say there are no moderates. There are no moderates in, uh, uh, among the Syrian opposition. That we don't uh, we don't have any um, uh, anyone that we can really work with. Um, and there um, there has been both by our own policy, the government's policy, and by um, uh, the rhetoric of, uh, of people in my party. Um, there's been an identification with the Syrian opposition and. Uh, Islamic extremism, uh, which I think is uh, um, a, it's factually incorrect. Um, B, um, it's it's horrendous with regard to, from a humanitarian point of view, the way that it tarnishes, uh, the, uh, it blames the victims um, uh, of this uh, horrible oppression, and and then finally it uh, it leads us to bad policy because we we can't look after our own interests because we're reading what's going on on the ground incorrectly, um, and then the the sixth principle, which I can now read clearly. Uh, is uh, is that our allies are the problem. Uh, the, the amount of rhetoric that has come out of the White House um, about uh, um, the, the amount of rhetoric that has come out about the problematic Saudis, um, the problematic Turks, uh, and, and so on, at the same time that there's no rhetoric whatsoever about the problematic Iranians. All we know about the Iranians lately from the White House is that they're this group of moderates who took over the Iranian government and they want to make a deal with us and they want to work with us against ISIS and, uh, in Syria. And isn't it wonderful that, that they too are about to turn the corner and, 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 uh, and, come toward, and come toward us. Meanwhile, we have these problematic allies who are, who are causing us all these, um, all these problems. And the result of that is what? The result of those six principles. The result is we have this event like just took place. Uh, which is we have this we have this uh, this ceasefire which um, as as Joe uh, uh, I think very very um, adeptly pointed out is um, is 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 an illusion right it's an illusion everyone is sitting now waiting for the next round and the next round is coming Be believe me there's no way that this that this that this that this blossoms and grows into a larger uh, into a larger piece and the result of that is that that then then um, uh, Assad and his supporters, meaning the Russians and the Iranian-dominated forces, take Palmyra, and we and we get things in the newspaper like yesterday. Boris Johnson, uh, prominent Tory politician in in in, uh, in in Britain, writes that 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 Palmyra has been liberated by uh, you know and uh, that the ISIS has been defeated there by the Assad uh, by, by the pro-Assad forces, and isn't that really wonderful? Right? Isn't that what I mean? He's he's smart enough to know that he had to, he had to mention the fact that yes, of course, Assad does use chemical weapons and torture his own people and uh, and so on. So he, I feel a little bit I, I I Boris Johnson, I feel a little bit sheepish about saying this, but isn't it isn't it wonderful? No, actually, it's not wonderful. It's not wonderful. Uh, believe me, I don't shed a tear for for uh, for any ISIS fighter who's killed. Um, but what are we talking about? Who who liberated 
Palmyra. It's uh, Afghan and Iraqi Shiite militias uh, dominated by the Iranians, uh, you know, trained, equipped, and deployed by the Iranians with the support of Russian, uh, uh, of Russian air power. Um, uh, and uh, as Joe said, we have subcontracted to the Russians in Syria, in, in Syria, which means we are building a new order, not just in Syria, but in the Middle East, um, in which this Russian-Iranian alliance and, and this network of militias that the Iranians have put together, uh, which is now operating uh, not just in Syria, but also in Iraq, also in Lebanon, also in, in Yemen, and so forth, is, is an acceptable partner for the United, for the United States and for the, uh, and for the West. Um, uh, it also means that we, 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 we completely misread what's happening what's happening in Europe, because the refugee crisis in Europe and all of the tensions that it creates in Europe and in NATO is a consequence of the actions of this Russian-Iranian-Syrian alliance. But somehow, popularly, we, have, we are associating in our minds with ISIS rather than with the, with the actual perpetrators. This is the Russian-Iranian um, uh, Syrian uh, alliance, and even in the the right wing now in um, in Europe, the anti-immigrant wing is looking to Russia as the uh, as a as a as a partner in solving the the, the refugee uh, problem, which is a completely pathological uh, uh, pathological position. Um, and so, listen, just just to sum up. Um, uh, I think that we uh, that we accept these principles uh, um, uh, at our own peril. Um, uh, the, the, the humanitarian cost that the, that the Jomana has um, uh, has outlined is 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 uh, really staggering. I mean, we're now we now have estimates of nearly um, half a million people killed, mainly by the Assad regime. Ten million people, perhaps, uh, uprooted in one uh, uh, in one in one form or another, um, uh, and and that is horrendous. And I think as Americans, uh, we, we should be concerned about the fact that we have just turned a blind eye to this. Um, but then there's the strategic the, the 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 strategic factor, and I'll just mention three things here, and I'll stop. Um, the the one is we have degraded our alliances. Uh, in, in the region, our, we have be, we have denigrated our tra traditional allies. Our traditional allies do have problems. We have problems. There's no doubt. There's no doubt about that. But by emphasizing those publicly, and by moving away from our traditional allies, that means the Turks, that means the Saudis, and the Israelis, uh, and, and so forth. Um, we have not built structures in the region that are capable of contending with the challenges of the region it, with anything other than unilateral military force, which is what we're supposed to be uh, what we're supposed to be avoiding. So if there is a if there is another shock that comes, like a destabilization of Saudi Arabia or a destabilization of Jordan, the only tool that we really have at our disposal is unilateral American uh, uh, action, uh, which is uh, uh, which is problematic. The second thing is we are not building a stable new order. We are we are we are we are we are sowing the seeds of further conflict, uh, and you can see that. What for for example, and this is just to give one example. We are now in a conflict with the quietly in a um, uh, in, in a conflict with the Turkish government about this hundred uh, kilometers of territory on the the the, the, the Syrian Turkish border that the that the uh, the Tur Turks have not closed. We're telling them. That if they don't, uh, uh, that if they don't close it, we're going to close it by working together with the uh, with the Syrian 
uh, with the Syrian um, uh, equivalent or the, 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 the Syrian arm of the PKK. That's, that's a Kurdish terrorist or organization which the Turks regard as a, uh, um, uh, as a vital enemy. So we're going to work with their Kurdish enemy to close this, um, uh, to close this border. They have, they would like to close it, but they want us to work, they, they, they want us, they're, they're willing to close it, but they want to do it under certain conditions which will protect them from the creation of a, an autonomous Kurdish uh, uh, authority on the other side of the border that, that stands for Kurdish separatism from, from Turkey. Um, uh, uh, if, if, we, if we continue down this path, uh, we can tell ourselves that, that sooner or later the, 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 the Turks will just accept this, but I think what, what's more likely to happen is just the opposite. At a certain point, the Turks will reach their breaking point, and they'll start taking unilateral military action, which will work very much against the, uh, uh, the, the, the peace and stability that we want. And then uh, finally, um, uh, the, 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 the claimed goal of all of this is that, that, that by doing all that we're doing, we're going to defeat ISIS. It's just not going to happen. Uh, with the absence of, with the absence of Sunni partners on the ground in Syria and Sunni partners in the, in, in the region, we cannot retake the territory that ISIS now holds. We can, we can, we can clear it out militarily, but we can't hold it and, and create a stable new order there. You know, we might get lucky, maybe because ISIS isn't the smartest organization in the world, uh, and maybe ISIS itself will collapse, but we're still going to have tremendous disorder there. We're still going to have a safe haven in that region for extremists that are going to be causing us problems in the region and in Europe and, uh, uh, and elsewhere. Well, we, we, we need to define the strategic goal not as defeating ISIS, but as creating a new stable order in the region. And the path to that begins with working with our traditional allies and coming up with, a, with an agenda that they can get on board with. Thank you. Thanks. That, 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 that was terrific. Um, I want to come back to something you said, and something that two of you also mentioned in different ways. When you said that the administration, part of their message is that there are no moderates to work with in Syria. Now, both Jumana and Joe, you're saying that... Um, These people were. Oh, thank you. Thanks. We're uh, thanks, Adam. We're, we're jailed. Uh, we're jailed, or they were killed. Um, so, what you guys seem to be saying is that, contrary to different messages that we're hearing, it's not too late, right? A lot of people think, oh, the whole situation has gone so far to the extremes. There's no one for us to work with there at any point. And I, I believe it's safe to say this, that's not going to happen with this administration. Um, but you guys seem to be saying that there are different, uh, different moderate groupings that it would be possible for the U.S. to work with. So I guess, first of all, Jamane, if you can give me kind of a picture of what that, of what that opposition looks like on the ground. I know it's not entirely, uh, you know, it's not entirely uh, transparent, but just a general picture, and then I'll ask... Uh, Mike and Joe to talk about what that might look like in terms of, of implementing policy, if there are actually moderates to work with. So I'll, I'll probably defer a little bit on some of the armed group section to Joe, because he might actually be a bit more familiar with that than I am. I work, tend to work with more of the civil society movements. Um, but I, I, I definitely support the notion. No, I wasn't really yeah. talking about the armed groups. I'm just saying what the general the movement that right, what I the get movement it. Yeah. Looks like at this point. Yeah, yeah. No, and I definitely agree with the statement you just said that there are 
there is a moderate uh, civil society movement in Syria, and frankly, one that the United States government has been supporting. I mean, the State Department funding is, has a significant portion of that has gone to keep uh, media you know, organizations, uh, local councils alive, et cetera, and, and organizations that have really withstood the pressure from Jabhat al-Nusra. Um, and you know, until about a year ago, ISIL as well. I mean, there were some local council members, uh, one of my friends actually, who, who remained in Deir despite the fact that ISIL was there to try to keep some sort of movement alive. Alive, um, but then he himself was also killed by ISIL. Uh, so, so I definitely believe believe in that um, in that movement. Not only because we saw them um, during protests, but um, because there there is a significant number of Syrians who have not taken arms in the past five years and that have remained in Syria that have chosen not to leave. I mean, they they could have left, um, but I do believe that. That the people that we're seeing in Syria right now are committed in remaining in Syria, um, and not all of them have taken up arms. Um, and I think that uh, we we need to we need to really um, show our support for them. And and frankly, um, I don't think I mean we I know our ally like Mike was highlighting is has is the Kurds right now, and that's our main ally that we're that we're utilizing in the region. But the Kurds are not going to be able to come to Damascus. They're not going to be able to come to Homs. They're not going to be able to come and liberate these other areas from ISIL or from Assad or from from anyone else. I mean, they're not even interested in that kind of um, that kind of a, a fight right now. And so you need people from that region to liberate their own their own regions, and they can only do that if we really show them um, the support that Mike that Mike was saying that sometimes they're not aware where we and the international community really lies on this line. I mean, do we support them? Do we not support them? Um, and I, I think making that clear to them would, would really help. Right. Well, it comes back to something that you started with, Joe, when you're saying that the, in some ways the administration has, um, has farmed out a lot of its policy to the Russians. So, again, um, um, what's your sense, let's say for the, next, for the next White House, who is there to work with and what could be done? And then Mike, I'll ask you, you know, I'll ask you to follow up on that. Maybe I'll, I'll answer this question or your first question differently. Take a different angle, if you allow me. Since we're reflecting on, on five years later and what, what happened, I think it's important to make a kind of, uh, to take this moment of, of self-reflection and maybe part of it self-criticism. Two points, I think, that are important. If you remember, I, I hope you, you all remember, in, in the early moments of the conflict, Assad gave interviews. Rami Makhlouf, his cousin, gave interviews to the Western press, to the New York Times, to the Wall Street Journal. And he said, he said exactly, look, and it was only few peaceful civilian protests in some streets of Damascus and in a village near Dara. okay? There was no Syrian war. He said, look, this thing is gonna radicalize and Islamize, it's going to weaponize and it's going to regionalize. We looked at that. Okay, this could have been analysis from a researcher, but it was a president of the republic saying, this is what I'm going to do. Okay? Now, what's, what's worse is that we helped him implement this. I mean, we, the world, I mean, the West, etc. So these prophecies became self-fulfilling prophecies with our inaction, mistakes, inability, unwillingness, etc., everything that Mike has, has talked about. So 
I think that everything was written on the wall since the start. I mean, we knew that this was the playbook that Assad wanted to put in motion. And by doing nothing or by doing the wrong things or by having the wrong analysis, willingly or unwillingly, we help this reality taking shape. And then this reality become a reality. And then we took it as a pretext not to do anything. I mean, if you remember the debate in Washington in 2012, it was, if we go there, we will radicalize it. If we go there, we will weaponize it. If we go there, we will enhance the regional conundrum. But by not going there, we made all this coming true. So this is something I think we should reflect as analysts today in retrospect. Now, where were the turning points of the, of the missing opportunities? Of course, everybody has in mind the chemical episode. This is probably the historical missed opportunity. But there were missed opportunities before that, and there were missed opportunities after that. And there are still missed opportunities today. As Rumana has said, today this hype in Washington and elsewhere about the Kurds as fighters against is nice. I mean, we all, I mean, I have respect for the Kurdish fighters. But the Kurds are only interested in sanctuarizing Rojava. They will not go and fight in, 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 uh, in Dara or in, uh, even in Deir Ezzor or, or in Damascus. I mean, this is a limited faction. Now, Mike mentioned the allies also. Uh, I mean, neglecting our allies is preventing us today in building this new opportunity, but not only in terms of military build-up. It's a political matter. I mean, if you want to rebuild a stable order that will manage a post-ISIS Middle East, you will have to have a new social contract in the Middle East between peoples and states. And this is a reality. This is a truth that you can't escape. And by keeping turning around the bush of this issue that is really democratization, the change of the social pact, political formula, that, by the way, Russia and, and the U.S. has written in the Geneva platform. It's written on, I mean, it's ink on paper on the, on the, on the Geneva platform, an order transition that would lead Syria to a normal, more or less normal political democratic life. So we're not inventing the wheel in, in 2016, but only we have to look back to the missed opportunities that we are inheritors to today. A last point on this issue, and this is maybe the part that will is difficult for me to express, and you will maybe allow me, and, and, and I mean, people know where I stand. But in this issue of radicalization and who is the moderate to work with, there are no moderates and etc. My bitter feeling five years later, uh, one of the things that I reflect upon with, with self-criticism is that probably the opposition revolution, call it as you wish, I mean, this reality of the anti-asset forces, I think they have missed the battle of the narrative. They have not constructed a proper convincing narrative to their friends, to their allies, to the world, to other Syrians that were fence-sitters in the, in the early ages of the conflict. And I think that this is something which is still doable, and I think that the opposition should work on that. The narrative that Syria has from the start was a peaceful civilian revolution. I don't want to use the term secular religious, because in the Middle East, this is something very relative. I mean, we're not in a Westminsterian, Scandinavian part of the world. I mean, this is not the way things work in this region. But they have missed the construction of a proper narrative that is able to stand in front of the narrative that you were uh, denigrating a few minutes ago, that Assad is the defender of the, of the minorities and the Christians. Let, let, let's, I mean, name things as they are. 
I, as, as a French, partly, I'm, I'm Lebanese also, was appalled yesterday, before yesterday, on the Sunday, on the Easter Sunday, to see a delegation of French MPs and politicians and researchers and journalists going to Damascus and sitting with the butcher of Damascus, of Syria, in the name of this guy is defending the Christians. I mean, for me, this is something, I mean, besides the, besides the counter-truth of it, but I'm very bitter that the Syrian opposition and us all have missed the construction of the proper narrative that is able today to uh, confront this this, this truth that is leading the entire, let's say, eastern part of Europe today to turn to Vladimir Putin for protection because they are completely appalled and tetanized by Muslims invading them under the name of refugees and etc. We and th in that sense, Mike, we, this is a defining moment not only for the Middle Eastern order but for the world order. We are constructing the world order or misconstructing the, the world order for the 30 years to come out of the Syrian cauldron. And this is why I think this is not only a Syrian question. It's an international question. It is partly ethical. It is partly geopolitical. And it is partly, let's say, a, a strategic issue. I asked George, uh, you said 30 years. Is that what you were? I mean, no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm ready to negotiate on that. <laughs> Um, Mike, I know that you, uh, I'm not going to ask you to write a narrative for the opposition, but what would, be, what would be the narrative, why is Syria still important right now for the next administration in terms of U.S. strategic interests, and what is the entry point for the United States right now? Is it these moderate groups? Is it different allies to work with? How, it's such a big issue now. We've allowed it to get very big, so what's the way in? And, and, and explaining it how. Right. Explain why it matters. Uh, well, I think the next. First of all, let me let me just make some predictions, and then and then I'll say what I what I think should happen. Because I, I don't think what I think should happen is actually what's going to happen. Um, I mean, when I watch the the debate on the Republican side, um, uh, I think that there's um, more of a tendency to agree for all that they uh, that they claim to disagree uh, with President Obama on these issues. I think there's much more agreement um, than meets the eye. Um, uh, I mean, there, there's, you, you can divide the U.S. national security elite, I think, into two, into two groups on this. Um, and one group says that you can't, sees it basically the way I described it, you can't solve the Syria problem without, uh, you can't solve the ISIS problem without also thinking about Assad and Iran. Um, and that, that this, this uh, territory of uh, jihadistan from Baghdad uh, to Aleppo is is one is one problem, and it requires we have to have a policy a, a uniform policy about, about bringing order to it uh, across uh, the the Syrian Iraqi frontier, um, and the other the the other one the the other way of seeing it says ISIS is the problem, not Iran and Russia, and so it, it, in that first category that says that this is one unit. Then it's the problem is not just ISIS; it's also Iran and, and, and uh, Iran and Russia and their proxies. Uh, the other side says no, uh, ISIS is the, the is the is the core problem. Uh, ISIS, you know, Russia and Iran might be problematic in certain respects, but they, they the, the, they're not as big a threat to us as uh, as ISIS is. And we can uh, we don't have to work against them. We don't have to impose costs on the Russians and the Iranians for what they're for what they're doing around. And on that on that side, you have if, if you divide it up that way, then you see some remarkable things because on that side, uh, the side that says 
basically we can work with the Iranians and the Russians in Syria and Iraq, you find that President Obama is there, Donald Trump is there, Ted Cruz is there, right? And they'll, they, they, they like to blur the lines a little bit by, by not admitting the degree to which they want to work with oh, the Russians are. and the Iranians, but that's the, that, that's the way it is. And I, and I think that the, that the American public, uh, unfortunately, uh, does agree largely that, uh, that there's nothing that we can do Right, and that we really do need to just kind of take a step back from this and let whatever happens uh, uh, happens. There's nothing. There's nothing that's going to come up in domestic politics that's going to make a president change his mind about that. So, the the, the preconceived notions that they come in with are are, are what what's going to determine it. Um, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton possibly uh, she's she's sending signals that she sees things a little bit different than President Obama on this. Um, but uh, but she has a side of her party, and it's the uh, it's the Bernie Sanders wing, the progressive wing of her party. Look, Ber Bernie Sanders doesn't want to talk about foreign policy. Period, right? You can't you can't get him to say anything about foreign policy. And when uh, when it comes time to govern, Hillary Clinton is going to be very much aware of the fact that she's got her Bernie Sanders wing. So uh, oddly enough, the progressives of the the Bernie Sanders and the and the American firsters of Donald Trump they end up in the same position on uh, on 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 Syria. So it bodes ill. It requires a president to have a, you know, to come in with a conception like Joe already has, and to understand the intersection of these things in that uh, in that way. So I'm not I'm not optimistic, uh, but what I what I think what I think what what I would like to see is a president that would come in and would say, uh, look. Obviously, the United States is still vital. The Middle East is still a vital interest to the United States. And what's the proof of that? The proof of that is that for seven years, President Obama tried to pull back. And he can't do it. He can't do it. We're, we're you know, he, he may say the Iraq war is over, but we're fighting in Iraq. We're, fight, we're fighting in Syria. And, the, and the, tri the trend line is going in the opposite direction. We're, 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 we are committing more resources uh, uh, and en engaged in more military activity as, as, uh, as, as time goes on. So um, the idea that we're, we, can somehow, um, we can somehow pull back from the Middle East without it following us, I think that, that thesis, that thesis has, been, uh, has been completely disproven. Um, and then I, I, I think that uh, we need to think about what kind of world we want to live in. Right, just these kind of refugee flows into Europe, and the effect that it has had on European politics and on American politics. Right, we're we're talking about we're, we we are talking now about uh, uh, about much greater much greater control over people, much greater control over borders, much greater control over our own lives. Right, because of this chaos that we have failed to do, uh, that we have failed to. Um, um, that we have failed to uh, take care of in the Middle East. So, I, I think if a president wanted to explain to the American people why we need to be taking action in, in, in greater action in the Middle East and playing a, lot, um, uh, um, a more aggressive role in organizing the region and imposing costs on actors like the Russians and the, um, uh, and the Iranians, um, it wouldn't be hard to do at all. There's still a deep distrust of the Russians and the Iranians and the American people. The, the president just doesn't talk about it. But if we started talking about who it is who's actually I taking Palmyra, he doesn't talk about. He doesn't it. know exactly. Exactly, he knows right. if he did. Yeah, but who is taking Palmyra, and what does this region look like after the, after those forces are those forces are triumphant? It's not good for the United States. But what are the different things? I mean, just say I, I, I want to open this up for questions and answers in, 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 in a couple of minutes. But um, I just want to. So you were talking about allies before. What does it mean to? Uh, what does it mean to look at the region still 
in terms of allies? Because we're talking about Syria specifically, but we're ta also talking more generally about uh, the American role in the region, the American position in the Middle East. So, and, 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 and I, and I, I want to finish up on, on this question, so why don't you start off since you led into that, and then, uh, and then Joe and Jumana. Americans want allies to be like the allies we had in World War II. Right? They, want, they, they want our enemy to be the devil, and they want our allies to be on the side of the angels. Uh, and, uh, and, and they want to feel good about that, that, that the fight they're fighting is a, is, is a completely moral fight in every respect. Right? The, 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 what, we, what we get in the Middle East is something much messier. Right? It, we, we, we are, it's, it's a question of, of bad and worse and understanding what's, what's bad and, 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 and what's worse. We, we, we don't share the same values with the Saudis. We don't same, same, share the same values with President Erdogan in many, in, 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 in many regards. But, but history shows that the Turks and the Saudis are willing to accept a, a, a Middle East in which the United States is the hegemonic power. They're basically status quo powers that will accept the Ameri an American-dominated order. History also shows that the Iranians and the Russians are revisionist powers in the sense that they want to diminish the United States and diminish its and, and, and diminish its allies. President Obama is selling us a bill of goods and telling us that Iran has changed and Russia has changed and they don't want to weaken the United States and and uh, and, and they understand because we're now reaching out to them that we all have the same interest. It's just not true. Their, their, their goal, it may not be their overriding, their sole goal. You know, Putin may not wake up and every morning say, how do I undermine the Americans today? But undermining the Americans is on his agenda. The guy grew up in the KGB, right? You don't, you don't spend your lifetime trying to undermine the United States and then just, uh, uh, just because there's some changes in the international order, you forget about how good it feels to cause Americans pain. It feels good to him. And we need to understand that. It's as, it's as simple as that. Joe, if you want to, I mean, if you want to, if you want to talk about it from a French perspective or a regional perspective, you certainly don't have to talk about it from an American perspective. But what the region looks like and what America's role in the region looks like to you? How's that? Is that? A, and, and then the different people that we can work with, both in Europe and in the region. I won't delve into that too much. I mean, besides the fact that uh, Mike mentioned the Goldberg, uh, the Goldberg interview. I mean, the Atlantic peace, where not only the Turks, the Saudis, and etc. were mistreated, but even the Brits and the French. I mean, called uh, free riders and etc. So, it, and it's triggering a lot of reaction. Actually, I'd be curious in to know Paris what people are saying in Paris. Uh, no, they are outraged. I can tell you. I mean, and several things have been written. I mean, someone. Writ I mean, Simon de Galbert, one of our French fellow colleagues here in Washington oh, right. wrote in Atlantic, I mean, a very strong piece in, 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 in reply to, to President Obama. This is not the issue. I, I would like to say a few words about, I mean, two things. First of all, uh, this is why, I mean, it's not only, it's no more only the Middle East. I think it's what's happening in Europe is really, is really very grave and very dramatic. I mean, when you talk to politicians in France or in England or elsewhere, they tell you that probably besides France and Great Britain today, the entirety of the political spectrum in Western Europe is shifting towards something between the far right the far left, both populist and demagogic. And by the way, this is interesting because the Sanders-Trump uh, 
convergence is something of that kind, which is new in the U.S., but not at all new in Europe. We have been living that in Europe for the last 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. And also the shift towards a kind of Putinophilia by default, because these people don't find anyone to protect them anymore. And, and this idea that, that uh, I mean, I don't think that this is an analysis. It's a fact that Putin is saying, I mean, the day the wall fell in Berlin, Putin said, this is the worst day of my life and I will take revenge. I mean, this is written in all his biographies. We're not accusing him of anything. This is what the guy is standing for. So, um, so okay, now the choice is ours. Do we, do we want to build again a Europe that is a Europe uh, that resembles the Europe of the 30s or of the Cold War, or do we want to capitalize on the liberal order that was created after the fall of the Cold War? This is a decision that Western political leaders will have to make, and part of this decision is made today in the muds of Syria and Iraq. I say it again. It's not, if, it's not that I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed by that. No, it makes sense, but if, if you can just explain a little more, would you? Partly because of the, of the refugee issue that is completely changing the fabric of Europe, that is completely changing the perception of the political forces, the perception of the social forces, the way the electorate will behave in the coming years, partly because of, of what you said, the powers that will become the defining powers in the Middle East, Iran, Russia, others, and etc., if they supersede the West, the U.S., and others, will also shape the way the international order is constructed. The, uh, they are shaping the way the energy flows for the coming decades are, be, are, being, uh, are being constructed and, and designed. They are shaping the way that uh, uh, probably Arab peoples and Arab societies will evolve and will react and will shape their vision of the world. So we are really creating today. Now, of course, you can say the Middle East is marginal. Now, we're pivoting to the East and uh, a new world is, but even in the East, and this is a news that probably the White House should know, even in the East, they are looking at what's happening in the Middle East. You know, when you sit with, when you sit with Asian diplomats or Asian politicians from Singapore, China, and et cetera, they tell you, and I had these conversations, and probably we all had these conversations, the way the U.S. is behaving in the Middle East is telling us if in 20 years from now China takes over Taiwan or a tanker from Singapore in the Sea of China, if we are able to count on the American protection. And this is the new world order. I mean, this is not something related to Assad and the family and, the, and Lebanon. This is something planetary. We are redesigning the equilibrium of the world. Now, on the regional level, forget about the silly guys. Forget about the Saudis and the Turks, who are murky, they play with Islamists and the But look at your weak, small allies. In every speech, the State Department says that our aim in the Middle East and in Syria is to protect also and to, let's say, avoid and strengthen the fragility of states like Lebanon, Jordan, and etc. What are these states today living out of the Syrian crisis? Lebanon is on the, really on the verge of collapse. Jordan is on the, on the verge of serious problems. I mean, you have more and more sleeping cells. You have a number of refugees that have led the King of Jordan to say that we can't breathe anymore. I can talk about Lebanon. You ask me about the country. The spillovers on Lebanon are today really reaching the red line. I mean, Lebanon 
Lebanon has escaped the Syrian conundrum so far. It was a miracle, but miracles are not forever. I mean, at one point they stop. At least, frankly, you are. I mean, uh, except if you, yeah. So Nusra, ISIS are approaching the border. Lebanon is a country of three million people to three point five million people, where you have one point five Syrian refugees. Just imagine the entire population of Canada pouring in the United States. This is the magnitude. Okay, just imagine. How long this country can take without a president of the republic, with a militia that is armed to the teeth, that is calling the shots and, and, and making and politics and, and demaking politics, and etc. So, I mean, this is also partly in the discourse of the U.S. I'm not putting in their mouth something they haven't said. They say every day since three, four years that our aim in the Syrian issue is to prevent spillovers, is to uh, uh, enhance an orderly political transition and uh, prevent our friends in the region to collapse. Everything is happening. I mean, all these points are happening in front of their eyes. So if you want to talk about allies and etc., forget about the grand schemes of alliances. Even your small friends in the regions, your poor old friends in the region, are living helpless because of your lack of policy. So I think that this, this, is, this is interesting to reflect. Now, if you give me one second, you asked me a very interesting question about Lebanon and Syria. I think that we tend to over-exaggerate the comparisons between the two crises, the two wars, the, the Lebanese war and the Syrian war, at least because of one point. The Syrian war or the Syrian crisis is a rebellion by a society against an authoritarian regime. Lebanon was partly the, uh, let's say, the product of lack of state, lack of any regime, neither authoritarian nor liberal. It was the absence of the state and factions fighting among each other on who will define the central power, whereby in Syria you have a fight by a society that is aiming to seize central power. Now, where the comparison is interesting is that Lebanon ended up in a way that I think Syria should end up if we are able to lead it to a political process, meaning a properly accepted political power sharing by all the factions. Now, of course, a la Syrian, not a la Libanese. It's, it's not the question to replicate the sectarian system in Syria, but a kind of power sharing that so far the only party refusing that power sharing device is the regime. I mean, so far, at least verbally, the opposition has gone to Geneva accepting the platform of negotiation, whereby the regime also, if you take its words, is refusing to talk about the central issue, which is Assad, saying the only issue is ISIS and terrorism, and then we will see. So this is something that they are trying to escape. The second aspect, which is very interesting when you look at the, the way the Lebanese crisis was, was, was solved, and this is why I think the comparison stops also at the doors of Syria, very ironically, the, the sine qua non condition for a peace in Lebanon was that Syria becomes the tutelar of, of Lebanon. It was the mandate given by the West to Syria. Who will become the Syria of Syria tomorrow? I don't know. I mean, Iraq? Of course not. The Gulf? Of course not. Turkey? Of course not. So the contenders are probably Iran and others. So this is also something that we have to, to keep in mind when we go very quickly and simply or simplistically this comparison between Lebanon and Syria. Ah, thanks. That's, uh, that's great. Jamal, I'm, I'm going to ask you to wrap up this part before we go to questions and answers. And I can ask you, I mean, you know, we've been talking about the region. We've been talking about the, uh, the view from Washington. If you can, I, I have to say, by the way, it was very moving when you just mentioned uh, about your friend being killed by, you know, by, uh, by ISIS. Um, but if you can give us a, 
if you can give us a view of, of how how the Syrians are looking at it, how besieged Syrian communities are perceive, you know, just what's going on now and and what's it likely to look like? Sure. Um, and I obviously I'm speaking in my own personal capacity on this. Um, from the from the people I've talked to, I'm sure you're not going to be shocked to know that Syrians are incredibly disappointed with the way things have unfolded. Um, they, I mean, to say that they have lost faith in the United States is a is an understatement. I think um, they felt really uh, not only abandoned but betrayed um, by anyone who has any country, any leader who has actually attempted to. Um, or claims to have attempted to address this situation. I, we don't have to go back to the Goldberg article and the, you know, the, the red line and, and how that was the first of many disappointments to come. Um, the, the Security Council resolutions, I mean, they stopped, the Syrian people stopped getting excited every time they passed one because there was really the implementation was always the issue. It wasn't a matter of always agreeing on things that should be common sense, their human rights, basic human rights and needs. Um, and, and I think, you know, something that the Goldberg article was actually translated into Arabic very recently and has spread like wildfire throughout the Middle East. Um, and the comments that you know, the president made about, you know, contrasting Asian children who want to, you know, build technology and, and build the world and, and Middle Eastern kids who are killing each other and, you know. Uh, waking up wanting to kill America. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's, I, I mean, those are my cousins, right? I mean, I, and no one has ever expressed that kind of a sentiment. And it's, it's deeply disturbing, I think, to, to have read it as an American, to, to have read it. But I'm sure it's even more exponentially disturbing to be a Middle Eastern and reading that that is how, that is how the President of the United States um, views, views uh, the region. It's, it's, it's very disappointing, to say the least. So I, I, I think that the, you know, the, the Syrian people are waiting to see. Um, I mean, the, there are people who will always have hope, right? Like, I mean, I have to have hope as a Syrian American that something will come out of these negotiations, whether or not that hope is based on anything tang tangible. Um, but I, I guess some are waiting to see maybe what the next president can bring to the table. So, Joanna, thanks very much. Um, do we have someone with a microphone here? Yes, thank you. Um, uh, Hillel, please, if you would ask. Thanks. Uh, uh, Hillel Franklin. yourself. Yes, Hillel Franklin of the Hudson Institute. I, the question I have goes back to the beginning of the conversation uh, or the discussion and the presentation of the de facto partition of Syria and the attitude of uh, various present parties to it. And uh, it was, the question has to do with the relationship between Russia and Iran. It was suggested that Iran would not um, really like to accept that situation. Um, and I'm not, uh, they also wouldn't like to accept the situation where Russia is calling the shots. That I could certainly understand, but I'm not sure I understand why they wouldn't be satisfied with the partition, um, so long as their principal goals are are achieved. Um, and and that's connected, I guess, with the question of what exactly was the purpose of the campaign in Palmyra or Tadmor. Uh, I think you suggested that people were asking whether this isn't the first step towards towards Raqqa. It seems at least plausible that um, uh, it wasn't the first step towards Raqqa. It was the first step. It was the step towards Tadmor and, and a way of protecting the kind of partition you were talking about before that 
uh, Tudmore or Palmyra was the the long finger of the of the Islamic State into the central part of of uh, Syria controlled by Assad and, and something that was more threatening than Raqqa. How about if we have Joe take the second part of the question and then Mike, if you take the uh, first part. So Joe, if you want to talk about uh, Raqqa and the Pal uh, Palmyra campaign, and Mike, if you want to talk about why the Iranians are not, is that okay? We'll break this one up like that. Sure. Very, very quickly, maybe I was, I was a bit misunderstood. What I just aimed to say is that after the Palmyra operation, that is in fact very, if you look at it in details, and probably you know that, I mean, Palmyra was almost handled over by the regime to ISIS a year ago without one shot, uh, one bullet, I mean, shot. And today it's all of a sudden after the Brussels attack and etc., taken over by the regime, with also a few battles, let's say. Okay, it was a battle, but it was not so... So, so there is something murky here between... And, okay, this aside, the question now that is raised is, okay, this Russian, let's say, uh, covered operation by air, and Iranian and all the people that, that Mike has enumerated, I mean, the Afghan, Hezbollah, Asaib al-Haq from Iraq, and etc., doing the groundwork. Is this model going to be the pattern of something replicated elsewhere with an acceptance by Washington, for example, in Raqqa, or will the U.S. would like, I mean, or is the U.S. wanting to take the lead on other battlefronts like Raqqa in order to establish a balance between uh, Washington and Moscow? Judging by the diplomatic process and the, the behavior of the U.S. diplomacy so far, my bet, and I wouldn't say my fear, is that probably they would also subcontract the battle of Raqqa to uh, the same pattern that we have seen in Palmyra. The problem here is that it will become more problematic for the reasons that Mike Doran has mentioned. Who will control the territory of Raqqa? I mean, Palmyra is a very specific case. Okay, it's not really a city. It's a it's an archaeological site, and by the way, it's the siege of probably the harshest prison of the Assad regime that has been taken over. So to rejoice that the regime has taken, again, its worst dungeon is not something very, I mean, very rejoiceable, but this is on the side. But Raqqa is something else. If you want to take Raqqa again, you can't send Shia militias to take Raqqa and then to slaughter the, the Sunni population or to keep it away. Some, someone will have to take order and to, 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 to put order in that region and to govern it. And, and we're talking here about governance and non, not only military operation. So this is what I was implying in my probably very quick, uh, quick remark about that. Mike, do you want to take the first part? I mean, about the, uh, about the Russian-Iranian uh, condominium? Right. Um, I can just give my own my own view on the uh, on the relationship between the two. I um, um, I, I liken them to um, Siamese twins that don't like each other. Uh, they 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 share the same organs and they uh, and they share the same limbs and they or at least some of the same limbs and they can't they can't get away from it. Um, the by by which I mean the the Russians and the Iranians um, the, the, both have a strategic interest. It's not a tactical interest. It's a strategic interest um, in maintaining the Assad regime in, in, in place. They've been in, in, entirely consistent about this um, uh, all along, and that's what allows them to work, uh, to work together. I'm sure if I was reading the top-secret intelligence on the Iranian-Russian relationship, I would find all kinds of tension between the Russians and the, uh, and the Iranians. 
because, as Joe said, the, the Iranians don't want to be supplanted by the Russians, and they, they don't want the Russians to be able to call all the shots and so, and, and so forth. Um, but they have this strategic interest. And look, the, the, uh, President Obama is right about one thing. They're, the Russian and Iranian position in, in, in Syria is not that great. The, this, uh, they're, 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 you know, if you look at the forces that they use to take Palmyra, um, the, these are, these are not, these are not well-trained, efficient forces, um, that are capable of, uh, um, uh holding out over the long term against an, an, an aggressive and, dis and determined foe. Um, and so, and there's a reason why the Iranians are using Afghans and Iraqis, because they themselves don't want to die. Um, so, uh, and Assad himself can't mobilize his own, his own military. So, um, I, I think that they are, the, the Russians and the Iranians are stuck together, uh, for, for a very long time. And anybody who, on the basis of intelligence, real or imagined, um, says that they're going to fall out any, anytime soon is, um, is selling us a bill of goods. Uh, I saw two more hands in the audience, and I want to get these because we're going to have to close up uh, in a second. So back here, Firas, and then uh, Rafi, did you have your hand up as well? So if so, why don't you ask the question? We'll hold off on an answer, then Rafi, ask your question, and we'll see if we have a chance for any more. But let, let's go through these. Thanks, Firas. Thank you. First, thank you all for a very Identify yourself. Thanks. Uh, and then if you can bring it up here. And Rafi, if you can identify yourself and, and uh, ask your question. It's going to come from this way, I guess. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Rafi Danziger, an advisor to APAC. Uh, some analysts have said that ISIS, on the one hand, and Assad and Olaf is allies, on the other hand, need each other and feed each other that ISIS needs Assad as the poster boy for recruitment of the infidel monster who massacres Sunnis. On the other hand, uh, Assad and his allies need ISIS to say that it's only us against them. We are only the, all, all the, the only terrorists on the other side, and we are the good guys fighting against them, which is, I think, something that you suggested. And if that is true, isn't it the interest of both of them to continue the war in such a way that ISIS will remain intact, perhaps Palmyra is a small thing, which they're willing to do, perhaps an alibi, I don't know. But basically, they want us to continue and, uh, and not to really seriously hurt each other because in both of them interest to continue this. Okay, thanks, Rafi. So, so why don't we do this? 
Joe, why don't you answer Firas's mm -hmm. question, and then um, working back your way, then all of you come up with an answer to Rafi's question as well. But let's keep it uh, fairly quick, as we've got to close down in a second. No, uh, basically, Thanks. I Thanks. Very I, good I, questions from you. Thank you. I fully agree with, with what Firas said, and this is what I was implying. To Maybe to refine that, I would say the following. So far, uh, for what is possibly extractable from the American administration, Putin extracted it. You see, I mean, I think that what he has in Geneva, Vienna, I mean, this whole, this whole machinery is the ultimate thing he could get. This is why both sides have an interest of presenting the truth as holding, because the Americans would say, I mean, the, the U.S. administration could say to its opinion, to its friends, look, we've achieved something on Syria. There is a cessation of hostility. People can live. There is a political process. And by the way, in this political process, believe it or not, we're talking about Assad me and, and, and Lavrov in, in the corridors. It's not public because we don't want to spoil the process, but we're doing it. And time is passing, and the administration is leaving in a few months. So for the U.S., it's already something. For Putin, it's also convenient. I mean, he got what he wanted. He's sitting on par with the U.S. He has become the holder of the keys in Syria. But he knows that the digestion of this deal on a Syria basis and on the international level can't be done with an administration that is leaving. It has to be done with a new administration. So he knows that he can't deliver Assad in the six months to come. So he has a vested interest in hanging to this illusion of political process that, that turns around the bush. And then also, because he wants to, let me say, capitalize on this new parity between him and the US, he wants to know who will be in the White House for the period to come. This is the way I see it, which is not contradictory to your way of seeing it. So let's go very quickly. And Jumana, if you want to take Rafi's question, sure. Mike, if you want to finish it up, how's it? Absolutely. And I think what you what you just stated is absolutely correct. Um, I think that the that and this is something that the Syrian people have said over and over again in their protests that as long as Assad is here, you are giving ISIL an excuse, ISIL and Jabhat al-Nusra for that matter, an excuse to recruit, and it gives them. I mean, it fuels their fire really because they're the only two entities that are able to offer any sort of. Um, um, to win anything in any way, sort of. They're able to arm them, they're able to give them food, water, etc. Um, unlike some of the other armed groups that are poorly supplied um, and, and purely uh, poorly funded. Um, and I, I should also mention that just briefly that um, the, we did see some individuals in ISIL areas during these protests also hold out signs. And granted, they did it covering their face and in very obscurely so that they wouldn't be caught. But there were people even inside of ISIL-held areas who risked their lives to still show you know, that we are, we are for freedom, we are for democracy, and we are for the removal of Assad. So there is still a movement that is alive, a moderate, a peaceful movement that is alive even in these ISIL-held areas, even though the world is only able to see really ISIL at the forefront of this fight. So. Mike, would you like to just have the, have the last word? Sure. I, th I think there's a lot of evidence of, uh, of uh, uh, um, um, what would we say, uh, conniving together between ISIS and, um, and, and Assad, like the Assad buys oil from ISIS, or, you know, and, and the Russians blame the Turks, but it's Assad who's actually buying the, the oil from ISIS. Um, and the reason for it is uh, pretty simple. Um, the center of gravity for ISIS is uh, Iraq. And the center of gravity for Assad is, is Western Syria, what they call vital Syria, you know, Homs Hama, Damas Damascus, and uh, uh, Aleppo. 
uh, and the connection, the geographic contiguity between the Assad realm and Hezbollah realm. That's the what, what, what they're all focused on. Um, so their 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 centers of gravity are different. And the the other thing I think people miss a lot is that uh, when looking at the Iranian alliance structure and ISIS. Um, is that um, there's a kind of same strategic vector for the both of them. ISIS is a Sunni revolutionary organization that wants to carry out revolution in the Islamic world writ large, but they're focused on revolution and in in taking over Sunni territories. That's where they're focused. And, and Iran is quite happy to have ISIS out there taking care, fomenting revolution in, in, in Sunni areas. There's no possibility that they're going to become really active in Iran, for example. Um, so there's points where they have friction between them, uh, Iran and Assad and, 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 and ISIS, but, but basically the vectors move in the same direction. Thanks. That's terrific. I wanted to thank you all for coming. I want to thank our C-SPAN audience again. I want to thank Hudson, and I especially want to thank our panelists, uh, Jumana Kadur, Joe Bahut, and Mike Duran. So thank you very much again. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.